You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Um, thank you all so much for coming out. I'm extremely thankful for these fantastic speakers to be joining us. So I'm just going to read out where, yeah, their background, so we can all understand, I guess, their position in the conversation here. Um, Amelia Wellen, over here, um, is an Australian curator, researcher and writer. Her work centres on commissioning and facilitating cross-disciplinary artistic exploration, as well as interrogating alternative models for institution building. Her recent research and writing examines reproductive labour in the space of the contemporary art institution. Amelia has held curatorial and administrative positions in multi-arts venues, independent spaces, producing organisations and biennales in Sydney and New York. She joined West Space as director in 2019. So congratulations on that appointment. Thank you. Uh, Mathieu Briand, to my left, uh, is a French-born and now Melbourne-based artist who has participated in international group and solo exhibitions in institutions such as the Centre Pompidou in Paris, Bloomberg Space in London, UMEX Fondation in Mexico, the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis, Sharjah Art Foundation uh, in the United Arab Emirates, ICC in Tokyo, Mocha in Taipei, Site Santa Fe, Makaba in Barcelona. Um, ex you know, extraordinary list of uh, some extraordinary large-scale and significant institutions. For seven years, he's worked on a project called Etin Libertalia Ego, which was based on the idea of a pirate's utopia of Libertalia. The first volume of the project was shown in La Maison Rouge in Paris in 2015, while the second, Etin Libertalia Ego Volume 2, was presented at Mona in Hobart in 2016. Megan Cope is a Kondamooka woman from North Stradbroke Island in southeast Queensland. She lives and works between Minjeraba and Melbourne, her site-specific sculptural installations, video work and paintings investigate issues relating to identity, the environment and mapping practices. Most recently, Cope completed a commission for the Australian War Memorial as the official war artist, as well as a residency in Paris with the Australian Print Workshop. Cope's work has been exhibited in Australia and internationally, including uh, Goma in Queensland, Musée de la Civilisation in Quebec, Mona in Hobart, the Art Gallery in New South Wales, City Gallery in Wellington, Parasite Contemporary Art Space in Hong Kong, Care of Art Space Milan, and the Australian Embassy in Washington. And Mark Fury, at the end of our list here, has been in the role of Artistic Director of Gertrude Contemporary since 2016. He's worked within the visual arts sector for almost 20 years in a range of contemporary art centres, universities, museums, and artist-led initiatives with an emphasis on contemporary art and almost exclusively within the not-for-profit sector. Fieri has worked in curatorial and programming roles in Australian Centre of Photography, uh, in Sydney, Art Space in Sydney, um, Tokyo Metropolitan Museum of Photography, the Centre for Contemporary Photography in Melbourne, and West Space in Melbourne. So we have two people who have seen and overseen the, yeah, the evolving iteration of one of um, um, you know, Melbourne's key areas. So, why we're here, within the ever-expanding network of purpose-built and reappropriated buildings designed to house and display contemporary art and its associated discourse, we, in this panel discussion, I want to investigate the possible guidelines and outcomes for, create, for the creation of these spaces. 
um, to explore the important relationships between architects and the contemporary Australian arts ecology. Our intention for the talk is to engage in a public discussion around this topic to open the discourse generally on what these institutions add to the contemporary arts ecology. We aim for the panel discussion to establish a dialogue around what outcomes could be possible in this process and to explore the important relationships between architects um, and the contemporary Australian arts community. This conversation allows a reflection, hopefully, on the importance of the buildings that house our cultural institutions and the relationships they have on art, artists and audiences. So, as I, I think it's incredibly clear, these speakers that we have with us are all central to the cultural and con contemporary arts community here in Australia. And I'm hoping, um, well, not I'm hoping, I know, that their particular and personal experiences um, can provide an insight into the differing and sometimes conflicting values and significance of the buildings that house our cultural institutions. So, from my, or from the perspective of Edition Office, from our perspective, we think of contemporary art as an acute, active and engaged discourse. So, the medium, the work of art is a facilitator. It's, it's the carriage for a, a um, dialogue which is sent out as an act of call and response into the gallery space, typically, um, where it's able to engage in that response. The, the art gallery is a kind of an island. It's, I suppose it's a protected space where we can put out this discourse um, with a level of protection, um, allowing a level of, I guess, a critical mirror onto ourselves outside of the, you know, the, um, the flotsam and jetsam of everyday life. Um, um, so where we can engage with that critical discourse and those ideas um, without uh, an overall level of distraction. But architecture, inherently, it's not a neutral platform. Um, where the whether we as architects um, choose um, to think about it or engage with um, the politics um, or, our or our cultural position, the architecture we design is inherently cultural and political. It's a, it's a culturally and politically loaded act because it, it exists within you know, a human world that exists within a culturally and politically loaded environment. And we're extraordinarily interested in the, you know, the, com the coming together of these two things, this kind of chose an acute discourse within the contemporary art gallery and the passive, um, yeah, the, 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 the cultural discourse of identity and narrative that's happening in real time, that's playing out, once you've built the building, playing out forever in real time and evolving as we question our nationhood and identity collectively. Um, so, to, to kick off, I think I've had the platform for a little bit too long. Um, Starting with this platform of contemporary art in the gallery, it's a, there's a contrived stance to that. Um, within most galleries, we, we, we kind of isolate a, a discourse or an idea and we kind of um, um, put it within the white walls, the typical white walls of the gallery. Um, uh, I, I guess the parallel to this is putting work within the field. Mathieu, your work, um, your long-time work, has straddled both of these platforms. You've and have created work and evolved work within specific communities, and you've taken that same work and brought it back and shown it within the White Cube. Um, can you elaborate on you know, uh, your comments on this or what you've learned from this process of exhibiting in two different arenas? Well, <laughs> um, 
Well, I will say that um, any exhibition space, it's a political space or we we'll say a commercial space. Um, it's very difficult to escape from this question uh, today uh, as an artist. Um, so I will say that it, any situation of exhibition is very particular because also when you produce your work, you don't know where it will go, usually. Uh, in my case, um, sometimes I do studio work where I don't know where it will go, and sometimes I do specific uh, in-situ works. Uh, for example, the, the work I did for the um, show at Mona was a work I first did on a tiny island in Madagascar where there were no exhibition space. Uh, this uh, island itself was the playground, and I chose the island, and uh, I did the work uh, without any other constraint. And... After we bring that in a museum, so of course the experience that we, I said we because we were different artists. We are on the island, it was not possible to translate uh, in the museum for physical and uh, also uh, political and economical uh, reasons. So the thing is to always to be able to adapt uh, at the end the source of what you want to communicate and to be very flexible. Yeah. Um, I, I guess carrying on this theme of... Um, yeah, I guess I want to go down this... Uh, I guess the theme of community coming before we go too far into the gallery space, um, um, dialoguing with the, the community engagement, I suppose. Um, uh, I, I kind of bring to mind a, an example of an artist, a Chicago-born... Um, black American Afri uh, artist called Theaster Gates, whose um, a lot of his, you could almost argue his entire art practice is about supporting and feeding back into the, his, his community, his Southside Chicago community, um, and taking all of the art, all of what his art practice brings to him and feeding it back into upskilling and building new resources into his um, you know, Southside Chicago community. Mark, what you think the community activation or the, just the role of the gallery is in its localized community or is or is it you know does it need to be or can it simply be outside of that and be just a provocateur sitting externally to it what's your you know where do you sit and think about that relationship um thank you thank you Kim um well I guess you know we uh Working in the arts, I think we serve as many kinds of communities, so I think it's important to not think about it too explicitly as a, as a um, specifically a, a localised community. I think, you know, we would all sitting here probably suggest that, um, that we're, not, um, we're not community centres as such. You know, we're not a kind of a... Um, necessarily a kind of a... Um, a a place that services everybody within our localised community. So we, we are very much working within the realm of contemporary art. But I think very much as, as um, you know, certainly for Amelia, working within publicly funded not-for-profit institutions, we have a, a kind of a broad remit about servicing many kinds of publics, and that also includes um, local publics, so um, people that live in your direct community working very much with um, 
community uh, or contemporary artists, and, and that's kind of the role that we certainly serve at Gertrude in, in working with and for, um, uh, I guess, people working within the creative industries, and that includes contemporary art, but that might also include more broadly people working across fashion and philosophy and, and architecture. Um, so I think, you know, certainly with the architecture of, of um, Gertrude, which I'll, I'll, I, I should add was um, relocated from our, our former location where we were established in 1985 in Fitzroy. Um, and we moved out of, out of um, I guess, necessity out of the, as, as being in organizations that, that has never owned its, um, its architecture and with the kind of skyrocketing rents around Fitzroy. And certainly organizations like Gertrude um, exacerbate that, um, that kind of proliferation of commercial activity around um, the uh, areas in which we are located. You know, we dynamize in, in, in many respects um, the, the streetscape and the, and the broader community around us. And this isn't specific to Melbourne. This happens in every major city all over the world. And, and it's... it's um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's um, endemic of organizations that don't um, own their spaces. And, and I would say that for the contemporary art sector across Australia more broadly, um, that is certainly the case. So we're beholden to the kind of commercial rent. So while we do kind of activate these kinds of precincts, we do, we also fight for very much um, into a, a financial victimhood of that kind of dynamization as well. So working closely with um, Edition Office um, in 2000 and late 2016, 2017, um, they, we moved into an existing shell in, in um, the top end of Thornbury, Preston South. And we were really attracted to this, um, you know, both the location, but I guess the architectural shell as well, that it was a very... Um, uh, publicly accessible space, um, one that had kind of great street visibility. Uh, so for those of you who haven't visited, it's got a, a massive kind of 30-odd metre street, glass street frontage. And I was actually reflecting on that as I was outside the NGV, and it, it, it's like this small, it's like a, uh, what's the way to put that, a, a kind of a, an, an ant ant uh, mound and this small funneling and all these ants kind of going in and, and Gertrude in many ways kind of works in a very opposite way because of the existing architecture I'll add um, in that it's, it's very much pronounces what it is as a building, you know, the, the front spaces are often activated through artworks or, or um, public discussions that happen very much within a public realm and, and I guess bringing back to this idea of community, it, I guess there's part of the um, design of the building and, and part of the, the existing infrastructure we moved into. Very much wanted to make that site and, um, and us as an organization as kind of porous to a public as possible, that it kind of strongly advocated that it was um, you know, open and accessible to broad public audiences. And I think through that, we've been able to kind of galvanize a kind of increasing level of public engagement from our local area, which kind of um, adds to the, the um, bringing together of our strong kind of loyal audiences for contemporary art that have existed over 30 odd years. Thanks, Mark. Um, 
In, uh, I'll probably quickly add to that. Um, yeah, Gertrude, contemporary, since 1985, had this, you know, incredibly, in, yeah, incredible window where the front gallery, Gallery One, was a street-spacing gallery, and it's a really unique situation. Um, places like Platform Gallery, the vitrines of Platform, uh, or another parallel in Melbourne where there was a, an exposure, a direct exposure to the non-arts community. There was a dialogue um, from people who weren't choosing to be within the arts community, and I think that's um, a really, really important thing. And it was um, you know, a fantastic opportunity in the new site in Preston of um, Gertrude's new space, um, where it is still on display. Um, um, to yeah, a wholly other art demographic to bring them in to give that feedback to, to a community that's not necessarily asking for it, um, but to yeah invite that conversation. Um, and it's beautiful to see that happening. Um, as a parallel to here over the road, we've got that enormous great big bunker with that tiny little arch, um, but the, that thin veil of the water wall. Um, I guess coming from St Kilda Road, where it's incredibly busy that thin water wall kind of, I don't know, what do we think of it? It's a palate cleanser. It, it, you know, transforms you from being on one side of out in the world and on the other side, all of a sudden you're, you're kind of reborn in an art gallery space. Um, it was certainly one of our objectives with the meagre, um, you know, I think a very low-cost <laughs> low option was the grey paint on that facade. It was um, the attempt at uh, utilising the council's purpose of using grey paint to cover up graffiti. Um, but repurposing it to create a conceptually neutral space, so a mentally clean facade of the, in the grey paint where it had no ideas for a very a micron thick layer that you walk through before you enter the gallery and kind of reset again. Um, I was on that level of repurposing and inhabiting pre-existing buildings. Um, um, I'm wondering... Um, I'm wondering, Amelia, if you can talk about, I mean, I know that uh, Gertrude and Westbase have a, a, a similar history in Melbourne of taking advantage of what resources they have. Um, and I'd like for you to tell us, Amelia, about the, I guess, the thought process that's going into the current design of the new fit out of Westbase. Um, but I'm also aware of, <laughs> it's gonna work through this. Um, There's a really, for us, there's a really big difference between what a repurposed gallery space has to offer as opposed to a purpose-built gallery space. I think a repurposed gallery space is simply what it is. It doesn't, it's never chosen to be a part of the art environment. So its history and its background, its economic history, its political history, they can interact with the artwork, but not, they're not forced to. They kind of can be a framework for that. And there's a freedom because the gallery isn't, um, you know, uh, in, in a sense, a purpose-built gallery is heart on sleeve. It's, you know, the agenda of the institution is, you know, framed categorically and existing within a purpose-built freedom, there's a freedom to, uh, sorry, existing within um, a repurposed building, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an empty palette there, which means the art can exist in any environment and simply be that conversation. Um, maybe I'm throwing you a two-pronged question here commenting on both of those two things. Mm. It's interesting that you make the distinction between a repurposed gallery and a purpose-built gallery, because Westbase is relocating to the Collingwood Arts Precinct, which I would say would be a repurposed building. It, I think it was built in the late 1800s, and it originally existed as a TAFE um, 
No, sorry, it originally existed as um, kind of an alternative education system for unemployed men, I believe, and then cycled into being a TAFE and um, I think at some point was somewhere for returning soldiers. It has had all these different kinds of civic responsibilities before becoming disused for 10 years and now being rebuilt as Embry Art Centre. So that's where we're going to be inhabiting, but we are calling it a purpose-built gallery, even though it is within this um, existing kind of social history. We're working with sibling architecture to design the gallery. Um, and there are a few things that are really important to us when kind of beginning this um, process of thinking about what a gallery space should be. Um, the first was looking at the office space in equal measure to the gallery space, because um, it felt very important for me as a director to acknowledge that art doesn't just happen, you know, people make art happen and that it takes laborers within an institution to put forward an artwork. And I didn't want to see, um, you know, the kind of infrastructure be hidden. You, you mean there are arts workers? There are, they <laughs> exist. <laughs> we exist. Um, and just knowing how um, our previous space, Burke Street, um, how it sort of existed was, um, it was such a beautiful space. The floor was so beautiful. The walls were beautiful. It really um, looked like an incredible gallery space, but the infrastructure was quite crumbling. The bathrooms were barely usable. The kitchen was falling apart. The um, office space was constantly being negotiated with artists for architectural interventions and was kind of forever getting smaller and smaller. So it felt important in the new space to make sure that there was a transparency to the work that goes into the institution. So we have designed the office space and then the gallery sits beside that. And similarly, we didn't want to enforce a white cube onto the existing spaces. There's these four beautiful heritage windows um, and it felt really important to not kind of cover that up and pretend that wasn't there. Instead, we're keeping it as an open shell and we're going to let the artists who we're working with lead the direction for how the gallery should be, rather than kind of preempting the kind of um, works that might come into the space, we want the artists to lead that conversation. And if that means building a wall so a video work can be shown in a dark space, then we can do that. If that means hanging things from the ceiling, then we can do that. But we just didn't want to uh, limit the conversation or have the conversation before speaking to artists. Um, the other thing that we've done with the new space as well is put a micro gallery on the exterior of the, of the space. Um, it's a disused doorway that is going to be repurposed into kind of a glass-fronted gallery. Um, and that gives us um, just a different way of working with artists, where in the central gallery space, we are looking for those kind of bigger commissions, um, artists seeking to work with the context of the space and the social history of the site, whereas the micro gallery gives artists an opportunity to present a finished work that doesn't have to uh, be so specifically beholden to, to the space and its history. Um, yeah, and then there was another part to your question, which I think I've forgotten. <laughs> No, I think you've gone there. I, I think the other part of my question was, um, yeah, I, I guess commenting or thinking on, uh, reflecting on the qualities that repurposed spaces have, mm. I, I suppose, um, that are different to a purpose-built gallery. Yeah. Maybe freedoms or restrictions that they have uh, from a curatorial perspective. Definitely, um, 
you know, heritage listing buildings, of course, have restrictions. I worked at Carriage Works for a number of years and there were all sorts of rusty rivets that couldn't be touched because they were heritage listed. Um, this is not quite at that level, the new space. Um, but I think it's about uh, setting up the infrastructure of the space. For instance, um, you know, a grid of hooks along the ceiling. So there are multiple hanging points for artists. Um, being able to have the resources to give artists to build the walls they need to repurpose a gallery as they need. And I guess I should say a lot of this is coming out of um, what was happening at our older space in Burke Street, particularly through our solo commission series that was started, I think, five years ago by um, previous director Danny Lacey and then continued by Patrice Sharkey, where artists at a significant point in their career were invited to present a large-scale solo commission at Burke Street. And we increasingly found that each of these artists were looking to um, intervene in the architectures of the space. I already alluded to the fact that the office was a particular ground that people wanted to work in and manipulate, but we also had Fiona Abacare at the start of this year who sanded a pathway on the floorboards and reduced the walls of the gallery by 30 centimetres. So these um, acts that some may seem invisible to some people but are markedly noticeable to others who are familiar with the space. So recognising that was a trend in how artists wanted to operate made us um, even more encouraged to keep the, the space as flexible as possible, knowing that by trying to prescribe an agenda um, or an architecture onto the space was only going to get messed with. Yeah, so there's an, yeah, interesting that there's so much desire to mess with or use the canvas of the institution itself. Yes, and yeah. also they were some of the most receptive exhibitions as well. They're the ones that are really memorable, the ones when artists did completely transfer the spaces, and we definitely want to support that, which is why we think the best way to support that is by stepping back and then entering into that conversation together with the artist. Mm. Um, I'm sure a, a parallel, um, certainly a parallel I can think of is the the almost shed-like space, the, the, the warehouse-type spaces at Acker, just around the corner. There's this kind of acute building, almost like a spaceship in this scorched-earth environment. But when you go inside the art spaces, they're just sheds. They're so agile. Um, they're, they're as you know, neutral as possible, in a sense. They're so... Um, available for whatever the hell you might, might want to do in there, apart from having a personality. <laughs> um, Megan, um, with your practice fo focusing often on identity and mapping, um, do you feel a strong connection to the places that you exhibit? And do you modify or design or you know, conceive works depending on where you're choosing to display your work or where opportunities arise? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, my work is uh, often site-specific, um, but always located within um, a historical conceptual framework that aims to reveal um, histories or events that um, are often replaced by architecture um, or colonial frameworks and systems. So, um, you know, my practice is very much committed to... Um, you know, challenging, challenging that or trying to see the unseen within this particular um, space. So, yeah, when we look at um, Aboriginal history, a lot of, we know that a lot of um, that has been erased. So, I mean, my practice uh, in general has become 
like project-based or commission-based. I don't really have a studio practice, but rather um, I get invited to engage with community or bring an idea into the space that will connect to a historical event. And um, most of these um, stories or ideas or bodies of work come from my Kwanamuka history and culture and things that have happened on my country. But because the colonial project is quite... It repeats itself quite often, you can go to many other places and um, find that there are similar events that have also affected other Aboriginal nations and this within the cities and places. So, um, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's probably, I mean, maybe I don't, maybe, um, maybe um, but I'll add um, just to put a framework around that, um, I, I would suggest that the architecture of Australia generally um, has a very strong power and capacity to reinforce the status quo. And the status quo in Australia is, you know, the, the colonial, the, the gaze left over or maintained and perpetuated from the colonial project. Um, and there's a lot of redacted history underneath this and there's a lot of, you know, redacted identity that is not present in, you know, the architecture of our, you know, towns, communities and cities. Um, yeah, that certainly needs to be scratched and brought back to focus. Yeah, I, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm really interested in what art can do and how it can um, create a space for the return of, um, you know, particular practices and philosophies that enable, um, uh, yeah, all living things to exist. And I find that, um, you know, we have this very strange relationship in Australia um, with this place, so um, yeah, the the way we relate to buildings and history is very much a very comfort zone and space that protects um, itself from what really um, the history and what is really here. Yeah. Um, Matthew, come, I, I guess coming, you know, conversation drifting around so identity and and the. You know, which is a, a bit of a central, you know, uh, a figure in this conversation for us. Um, and what does a gallery mean to anyone who's there? And what does it mean to the place that it's in, um, both with the history that has come before it and the few, obviously contemporary art is an evolving thing. It's an evolving discourse. And, uh, you know, once the building's built, it's kind of situated and it kind of, you know, it gets aged and it gets more history accreted to it. Um, from, you know... Um, French-born, travelled, lived, worked, practised internationally and living here now and still practising locally and internationally. Um, what's your perspective on that when you exhibit here or overseas in terms of does localism or identity, um, is that a component in your work or not at all? Is there a freedom to not feeling local or is there a localism that's applied here now in your own way? Can you speak about that? Well, yeah, it's... Um, not, to, not to say that you're other in any way, yeah. sorry. <laughs> I, I would say that since I, uh, I'm in Australia, I think a lot about the, um, how to say, the, what's an art space and what's culture for uh, a community, I would say, because uh, me, I came from Marseille, with a very old city, it's older than Paris, we are 2,600 years. 
and there is a museum and archaeology everywhere. Um, and you know, one of the older museums in the world is Le Louvre also. So Le Louvre was made as a community thing originally. And also in Europe, uh, it's where we start to have special space for contemporary art and where we use it for um, also political reasons, like uh, the Guggenheim Bilbao, who I think is one of the first space built really for um, a political reason and commercial uh, reason. So, yeah, do... How to say that? It's... Uh, from, um, from my perspective, from... Say, Australia, what... I would say, what, what's artists need, in fact, to make it more simple? What's public need and what's artists need, you know? Uh, we, need, we need resources. It's not absolutely a space or, um, or someone who asks us to do something or invites us to do something. I think we really need um, resources to have time, in fact, to do what we have to do. And uh, so we can see that um, some people want to invest in making big space or have their program and everything, but most of the time uh, they never ask artists what they think. And um, so Collingwood Art Pressing is a very good example of that, you know. Uh, this project, I think it's a seven years project or something like that. Nobody knows where it's going, you know. There were different projects, one after another one. And um, they didn't really ask the artists living here, you know, or the artists um, coming through uh, also. It's, uh, it's very specific, I would say, to Australia because I used to live in different countries. And it's very, very isolated, uh, not only physically, but also... Uh, mentally. Yeah? So, very difficult to see, in fact, where it could go and why we need this space or not and why people decide to do them, you know. It's, the, I think, uh, most of the time political reason or friendship reason, you know, but it's not really clear. Um, yeah, Hi, Kim, can I um, just pull out some of those points that Matthew's making? I mean, I think it's Australia is quite interesting um, and it's, there's a few who know the, the NGV is being pitching for a new contemporary art space, uh, a large contemporary art building uh, behind it in, in what was formerly the ABC building. You know, and that's only sort of 20 years after expanding into the Fed Square campus there and currently the Art Gallery of New South Wales is embarking on a, a large-scale capital-raising campaign to expand their spaces as well. We've seen GOMA emerge out of the Queensland Art Gallery in Brisbane. So I think there's a, a huge kind of uh, directorial... <laughs> NGV just cut me off. A huge um, directorial vanity around um, expansionism and, and kind of uh, the sort of monumentalization of architecture. And, and um, so it's, you know, about making these precincts, ma making these kind of already kind of quite iconic and large scale and heavily funded and, and heavily kind of um, philanthropized 
organizations even more bigger, more large than what they already are. You know, and I would suggest that at the expense of all the feeding organizations and feeding incubator organizations like Westbase and, and Gertrude, by example, um, to kind of create these almost monoliths. And then, I, you know, I always feel like they get to a stage where they, they embark on these enormous building projects and then it gets to the stage where they actually open and then they say to artists, you know, the budget for their, their, their projects, the artist budgets in, in terms of artist fees and production budgets don't expand with the expansion of these kind of big organisations as well, which I think is the hugely problematic um, area about this kind of um, infinite kind of architectural expansion. And, and this comes back to that point Matthew is making about um, time and budget for artists to kind of make these work. So I wouldn't say that these initiatives are really driven by artist desire, but they're d driven by kind of a, a, an organizational directorial desire of, of leaving some sort of architectural legacy, which I think is, you know, relatively um, problematic for the broader ecology of the contemporary arts. You know, I think the smaller organizations aren't allocated the same degree of um, expanding funding resources so that they too can expand and better support their artists as well. And I think this is, um, you know, something that we, we can't talk about this relationship between contemporary art and architecture without thinking about how the artists are, are not kind of significantly resourced through this kind of process as well. Okay, this is going, now it's getting interesting. Um, I, I guess we're going in a direction that I didn't forecast, but I'm, it, you know, um, clearly it's an elephant in the room is that um, what we were talking about before is arts workers, the industry of, you know, of artists doing their work. It's not just the showpieces in the galleries are the final step. And that's the interaction, that's the interface between the public and the arts. Um, but the enormity, I guess the iceberg behind that tip is the, you know, the generation, the research, the production of these ideas um, um, that, I, that I believe incredibly strongly that um, a strong contemporary art dialogue is you know, the, the, the furnace for kind of um, developing our ideas as people, it's, you know, it's pushing forward our nationhood, it's doing all of those really big things. Um, and, it's a, um, and it's, you know, I think the labour of that, um, the economy of that needs to be brought into the forefront. Um, often it's seen too much as, um, yeah, overprivileged artists um, messing around with, tinkering with um, their own personal ideas and ideologies. So I think reinforcing and elevating the status of arts workers with, yeah, you know, perhaps secondary or just an architecture of its own right. Um, in just architecture is a big letter word, you know. Just maybe giving it status, visible presence and status, is probably a very important thing as well as, um, yeah, reviewing the status of the gallery itself. Um, Say, um, yeah. you know, I've become uh, less interested in showing in um, major uh, institutions and more interested at looking at, um, at looking at what art can do and how it can exist within civic spaces um, and actually have a community engaged kind of practice and that for it to to be um, something that you know, creates... I mean, do we really need to always have lectures inside an auditorium? You know, why can't we have public discussions um, about things that we care about um, that aren't so beholden to the institution's um, 
own political, um, you know, agendas and frameworks. You know, I think um, that's what I've learned. I'm still a young artist, but it's quite interesting um, that, that what Mark was saying, you know, I've, I've started to realise this and thought, well, this is really not why I started art, actually, you know, and, and finding um, it more important to have collaborative and discursive kind of um, practices um, that, yeah, don't... where the architecture or the relationship with the architectural institution doesn't drive it or decide it. Absolutely. I mean, the, yes, the, um, uh, the discourse should be driven and propelled from where it wants to go, um, not be limited to. I, I suppose at its best it's enabled um, by the architecture or the... the uh, maybe the architecture is in two frameworks. The architecture is the soft infrastructure of the institution, but also you know, the hard architecture of the building itself. Um, I would hope, at, at its best, is always enabling the dialogue put forward by the artist rather than limiting it and constraining it. Um, certainly, that's the, that's the ideal. Um, and that's, you know, the, the reason for this conversation is it's really important for us at Edition Office to get this conversation out into the public as much as possible because the dialogue, this, this discourse within contemporary art, it's, oh, it's a collective shared community discourse. It's not a one-way street. It doesn't just exist within an artist in their work. The artist in their work is a feedback loop to the community and back again. It's, it's conversation. And it's really important that, we're, that the conversation is alive. Because um, even in a, a commerce sense, when, when art is heavily skewed in terms of um, the sale of work in commercial art galleries, even when that work is that singular work is purchased, the conversation and discourse around that work is community owned. We all own the ideas and the ability to communicate and talk about the ideas and the discourse of that work. Um, so there's always, I mean, whatever the, uh, the larger institutions or rarefied institutions are doing, it should in no way limit our ability to keep talking over them or through them and around them. Um, but certainly, if I mean, I would hope uh, that with uh, yeah, a, a greater conversation around these where we, I think one of my first key experiences is, is in, art, in an art gallery when I was younger was um, realising that I had a stake or I had, a, I had skin in the game in determining what an artwork meant to me. I think I was kind of struggled for so long when I'd go to galleries and I'd have to try and figure out what it meant. And then I realised, I was like, oh, I, could, I can interpret that and choose what it means to me. And it was so... There's so much agency in that. Um, and I think the, you know, there's so much agency in the ownership of the conversation, kind of taking, whether we're artists or whether we're from an arts background or not, the conversation's still ours if we choose to have it. Um, which is, for me, the, or for us as edition office, is the backbone for this conversation, is around you know, owning that conversation, and no matter what institution it goes into, and not what rarefied institution or um, close to the street, close to the, you know, for the community engaged institution is so important. Um, so I, I suppose coming back to that, um, or just going forward with it, Amelia, from your position as director at Westspace, um, how, how do the historical storylines or cultural storylines from different perspectives of the artists that come through your space and the, um, and the I, I guess the 
what you see as a community that um, Westbase is speaking to. Um, how, how is that affecting your directorial or curatorial position at Westbase? Um, understanding that feedback loop or that, um, the, the crossover of gazes, you know, the gaze of the artist meeting the very different gaze um, of the community. Is that something that, you know, comes into your thinking? Yeah, I guess often um, the community and the artist aren't separate or aren't oppositional. They're often one and the same. And I think it's because Westbase has this 26-year-old history as an artist-run initiative. Um, in recent years, we've kind of been transitioning to exist between an artist-run initiative and a more established institution. But 50% of our board are artists. We have a fantastic artist committee who help guide us. Our staff are artists. Artists are at the forefront of what we do. And that's really our first community. Um, and I would say, as we kind of approach our move into Collingwood, um, our second community that I'm really interested in working with is our localised community. Um, and that means kind of, you know, connecting with the, land, the Lands Council, with traditional elders of, um, in the Collingwood Fitzroy area. I recently, City of Yarra, put on a really fantastic Aboriginal history walk. Um, and I'm not from Melbourne, so it was really fantastic to learn about the rich Aboriginal history of Fitzroy and to understand it as comparative to Redfern and Sydney, which was not something I knew as a Sydney person. So that's a really, really important community for us um, going forward, as well as, um, I guess, the, hist the history of Fitzroy and Collingwood and the suburbs that they are, the kind of rapid gentrification that they've experienced, the displacement of, of people from those suburbs. Um, these are all really key concerns and questions and driving um, kind of values of the institution. And a lot of the artists we're looking at and working with next year are um, approaching their work from this localised perspective. Um, Westpace has always been a Melbourne institution, for better or for worse. Um, but I think kind of grounding that in the specificity of Fitzroy Collingwood uh, feels like an urgent thing to do at this moment. Moving from the city, moving to the Roy. Yeah. Yeah, no, moving to Collingwood. Yeah, even further away. Um, well, we started off in um, Footscray, actually. So this is our fifth venue. Transitioned right across. Yeah, the first West Space, I think, was above like a takeaway cafe in Footscray. Anyone from the audience correct me if they know more. That's true. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> what, what iteration... Were you in Burke Street? Well, I worked in it when it was uh, 2006 to 2009. It was in Anthony Street Anthony in Street. the city. That's right. We had so two Footscray locations, two CBD locations, and now Collingwood. Oh, but you're, you're going north. You're going east. <laughs> You've got a crosshair through Melbourne. There's a drift, an <laughs> institutional drift. Um, Mark, given this conversation and um, giving a 20-year perspective, um, in the, as an arts worker, um, where in the world do you see as the most exciting gallery spaces um, from, yeah, from your perspective? What is happening? What, what is the most interesting interaction between the spaces that occupy and house contemporary arts and the work that is going on inside it? Um, look, you know, there's many space, kinds of spaces that I, I like to visit and I, I do really like when artists engage in space and, and respond to a kind of a context and the architectural um, affectations of that space. But 
you know, as somebody that works in spaces, I, I, I guess I am more drawn to very neutral spaces. Like, I don't think it's um, a reasonable ask to always get artists to respond to architecture. I don't think that should that relationship should be as um, as um, overly determined by the architecture. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of quite a classicist in that respect. I, you know, I, I, I favour the, the white cube. I think it's, uh, it's the most, um, you know, there's arguments for or against the neutrality of the white cube, but I think, um, you know, having, preferring to work within spaces that are um, architecturally unadorned, I think it means that the works and the projects and the, and the specificities of the kind of the conceptual or material underpinnings of their, those projects can be more determined by the artist rather than the artist necessarily res responding to a space. So, you know, I guess I like, um, you know, I think something like um, the White Cube space in Bermondsey is a really kind of interesting um, um, architectural, um, um, uh, I think that was an existing space actually, but I think it's a really beautiful space, you know, with wonderful lighting and kind of really um, kind of interesting spaces that can in some ways be um, the artists don't necessarily need to respond to the architecture, right? So I like those kinds of spaces, and even at even at somewhere like the um, the Tate in, in Britain, you know, once you you know, it's a it's a kind of um, you know an enormous kind of monolithic building, not unlike the NGV. But once you actually walk into the spaces, you know, they are kind of um, expansive and kind of rectangular. You know, and when I think about spaces like, um, you know, NGV, NGV at Fed Square, I think the architecture is so um, omnipresent and so difficult. I think it, it's kind of in some ways kind of quite challenging for artists to always have to work with these architectures that kind of exist within those kinds of spaces. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, I think... Bilbao, which Matthew mentioned, is, is quite a, a, an interesting example because it's, you know, obviously architecturally jazzed out to the bejesus on the outside, but once you walk inside, the actual spaces are kind of quite classic in, in ways. And I think that's a kind of a great service to artists that they can kind of, each artist can kind of reinvent their project on its own terms rather than in response. Yeah, it's a, absolutely. Uh, it's a really... It's an interesting position when architects refuse to share their toys or want to kind of make sure they're always in the room. Um, the difference between NGB Australia and, and ACA is quite different um, in that they're both doing what they're doing on the outside, but um, ACA's allowing those just fully neutral, I guess, black versions of white cube spaces to be as super adaptable as possible, where there's certainly not that freedom at NGBA. Um, Megan, uh, I'm just wondering if you would like to, I don't know, um, offer your thoughts from, you know, as a Kundamukha woman, what, how prevalent is, I, I suppose, the whiteness that forms these institutions that you work in, and how much is that something you're, um, that is a burden or something you just use as fuel for your art practice? What's your interaction with it? I think it's really... Um Lots of things that have happened um, uh, with my work, um, and I find that everything that I do um, kind of informs the next 
process, like, and that there's some kind of continuum that work that occurs in my practice because it is always to challenge, um, you know, concepts of time and ownership and occupation and these sorts of things. And you know, like, I'm I'm always thinking about architecture. I'm always thinking about um, you know the environment and um, how to. I don't know, like right now, you know, I've been looking at middens um, as a structure, as an architectural form, and then, um, you know, repeated that or replicated that within a physical form that then is showed within a gallery space that then can start the conversations. But it's, like, been really interesting. What I've wanted to see now is the return to the landscape itself or to the to the, the saltwater country and... Uh, you know, I want the art gallery to be a process of rebuilding oyster reefs and rebuilding um, architectural forms that um, return to ancestral practices that, I guess, you know, um, can address some of the social and political issues that we're constantly talking about within art galleries, you know. So, so yeah, again, you know, I, um, I've been thinking a lot about what art can do um, as well as what it can say. Um, I'm sort of getting impatient or something and, and really wanting to see it go into different spaces, physical spaces, mm. yeah. It's, yeah, it's, abs it's interesting. Um, I, I think the reference I, I hope to put forward of Theaster Gates' work, there's a lot of money moving through the arts ecology. Just It moves from here to th there's huge rivers of money flowing through. Very little of it trickles back down into communities that those artworks are talking about. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting if institutions or artists allow their work to, you know, create a little eddy or a dam or a side stream of that river and allow it to actually feed back and regenerate. You know, uh, it's almost like performing politics or living politics, living the artwork. It's you know, um, not talking about it. Um, yeah, I'm really is a hugely interesting thing. I really hope that we can start to do that in Australia. Um, I know that there are lots of artists. Um, all over the world that are already doing this. You know, I really um, hope that we can start to radicalise um, this relationship with art and our, you know, place that we live in. I, I would like to jump on that. Please. Uh, yeah, the thing it's um, to, to, to go back to the idea of the architecture, it's always also an idea of territory. Um, First, we had church and religion, you know, and now it's museum, it's contemporary museum. It's for that I was talking about Bilbao Museum. Um, you have to, uh, perhaps you know, but perhaps there is three or four architects today who build most of the museum uh, in the world. Um, and so it's, it's really like a new cult or a new religion, and us as artists, we're supposed to feel that, you know. And so, for Australia, before the land was taken by the religion, you know, and the Freemason also built the, the country, and now we feel that it's the museum to, for the community, you know, we always like, oh, we need a space for the community, but who is the community? If you look, Collingwood is a perfect example. Who is the community today? If you look to Collingwood 10 years ago, it's absolutely not the same community, and I'm not born here, but I could see the change. And now there is a place we're supposed to answer about this, you know, and us as artists, we're also supposed to come and to repair, to think uh, uh, about that. So uh, today is um, 
the new gallery, uh, new museum, all this idea of a new cult, uh, I think it's really terrible, in fact. It's really not uh, help us, I mean, as an artist, and I think it's make um, the, the public really doom, you know, because like NGV, they just try to do show to bring the most people. They don't try to do show to inspire people or to educate people. Nobody cares. They will spend perhaps one million to do a sculpture and uh, they will give for small institutions no money. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a problem, you know. When uh, Collingwood, uh, when you see what the real estate made, and after they, because it's some private people also who put money in Collingwood, and when after you see the money they give back to the community, you know, I've said, oh, how is that possible, you know? And, and we are talking about, well, space for art uh, and public, but it's, it's really wrong, in fact, all this. Oh, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. Um. So, uh, uh, what are you going to do about that? No. <laughs> Working on you're it. Not, no, you're, no, you're... I mean, one... You're not the problem. These calories are not the problem. problem. <laughs> one, I mean, question that I do kind of have about all this as well is when galleries are paying commercial rent and galleries are public funded. That, to me, just seems like such a problem <laughs> when the public funding is just going to pay commercial rent. And, I, I mean, the way out, I suppose, is owning the, the space that you're in, but very few places are able to do that. Yeah. Um, I know I often look to Performance Space New York because um, I really like the artistic director there and their, their program and the New York City owns their building. And I just think there's something there in that model for a city or a council to gift a building for the purposes of art would really shift things a lot. I, I think that would be a huge thing if councils or government, you know, state, federal, you know, um, uh, you know, council, community-based governments could actually bequest or own buildings that are used for this purpose. That would be an enormous difference. To to have all of the money going through to rent, going through to programming, and enabling um, would be. Um, I mean, it's clearly um, the kind of support we need. I, I feel like I do need to say that. Um, before we kind of trash the larger institutions too hard, um, is that they are—they do have the capacity to to support um, and uh, edition office in collaboration with Yuani Scares have been uh, given the support um, for the NGV commission on the other side, which is um, you know unanimously selected by uh, the jury and given enormous support by the institution of the NGV to be uh, as a knowledge-sharing, an Indigenous storytelling platform and a truth-telling platform. Um, so, they, they, you know, I, I've, I feel very strongly that they, they can be used for, you know, um, spaces of good as well as, you know, But, but that's conditional and it's not permanent. No. And that's a problem. That's true. I mean, that, that's, in that situation, that's us utilising that platform for this purpose. We have to do it. You, can, mm. you can't not do it. But, you know, it's kind of frustrating. It's like um, a performance or something, you know? Mm. We know the value of these conversations. We know the value of these um, um, spaces, you know? We need to have them there so that they can facilitate other things and have artists and community and society talk about and be inspired, you know. Um, 
what else did you say? Educated, you know? Yeah. Okay, well, here's a call to arms. Um, I, I think we're running out of time. So being the community in this conversation is your conversation. Do you have any questions for the panellists? And that's okay too. Oh. <laughs> I was busy writing these down while you were talking. Um, I'd like to jump a little bit on what Mark was saying around um, the idea of expansionism when it comes to um, these public in institutions and the notion that uh, the, I guess the funding or the scope, which goes to, to what Matthew was saying also, um, doesn't seem to kind of enhance or expand with that intensity. So I guess how that might translate to, say, the notion of architecture and how it responds to, um, to, to, to the gallery as an institution. And the idea that the gallery itself is somewhat a framework for delivery as opposed to a, uh, a church or some sort of icon to, to draw people to it. And if that's the case then, is, 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 are we better to be designing very empty and open and incredibly flexible and cheap galleries and, and funneling that money into the creation of the work and the, and the making of the work as opposed to the flamboyance of the architecture, is, is that something you, you think is a good outcome? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, yeah, I can't really stress that enough. I think organisations that work as a kind of a, a laboratory, you know, more kind of um, nimbly reflect the, the times and the context that, that we're living and working in for, you know, both the artistic community but the communities and publics more broadly. Um, and, um, yeah, I think having, a, having sort of more dynamic kind of architectural responses that can be kind of um, altered and adapted over time, and I think it's really dynamic what Amelia is suggesting around the idea of the, the new iteration of, of West Space seems to perfectly encapsulate that, you know, and I, I guess part of that change, you know, I think also has to incorporate kind of more... Um, you know, I guess ecological responses to not simply building walls and changing with every exhibition. You know, I think we also need to be a kind of, you know, our kinds of organisations need to be more um, uh, responsible, I guess, environmentally responsible in the way of, of not necessarily changing the architecture all the time, but that it should not be overly precious and that it should be open and flexible to change. And I guess, you know, I guess two sort of things when I think about that is, um, you know, even in the, and I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not um, dissing out the NGV, but there are, you know, some an anomalous um, peculiarities, I, I think. Um, so we're in the first exhibition at Fed Square, the, the exhibition was in part curated by the architects because it was about exemplifying the architecture rather than what the architecture is, is purposed for, which is to hold and to present art and contemporary art. And another example of that is um, ACCA, which I used to work and have great fondness for. But again, you know, any sort of alterations to that building needed to be vetoed very much by the architects. So, I, I mean, I guess, you know, these, there, is a, there is a kind of a, um, um, a you know, a, architects, it is, it is their 
um, it is their um, their work. These buildings are what are what they do. They are um, symbolic of their kind of practice and their um, process thinking around the purpose of whatever that building does. But I think you know there is a, a certain stage where these muse museums need to let go of the architects and then and the architecture needs to be evolved in its own natural way. And I think that is as a, as a kind of a vehicle driven by artists or curators and in instances as well. I have one more question. Unless anybody else? No. Uh, the other um, thing I was interested in talking about briefly was this idea of um, transparency and the idea of, of opaqueness. And so um, do you feel that it's important uh, for these institutions to have an incredible level of transparency at the street? And do you think that that transparency is the most important thing in relation to engaging with or starting the conversation with the broader community? I guess the, 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 the physicality, I, mean, I guess I'm interested in the physicality of the, of the gallery as a, as, a, as an element in the streetscape and, and in the city and how that might um, allow people to access the gallery as a whole and, and the ideas that are held within it or feel like they can't enter it. Like, they feel like there's a sort of a barrier there. And whether that barrier is a physical one or a cultural one. Maybe I'll just say something very quickly to this as well. And this sort of comes back to this idea around, um, um, you know, the, re the financial resources of organisations. So, you know, both... both um, here, and this is certainly the case of, of, of West Space in, in, in actually all of its locations, it hasn't been located on the ground floor. So that kind of idea of kind of the transparency of the, um, the organisation and its accessibility to kind of the public isn't always possible because you know, obviously a, a ground floor tenancy is, is more expensive than an upper floor tenancy. And this is certainly the case, you know, certainly across New York where galleries are kind of on the... Um, you know, except for the very large galleries, they're on the second or third levels up in existing buildings. So that, you know, that idea of transparency is not always possible due to kind of financial restrictions around that. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it's the great asset of Gertrude that it, it is ground level and it does have such a huge public frontage that it can be and, and look like and act like it is um, a, a much more publicly embracing um, organization, you know, regardless of whether that public want that or not, you know, and I think that's the kind of the great thing that it can provide, it can work sort of both as an internalized environment, but one that's also externally projecting. Uh, hi. Um, listening to all this, uh, there's one uh, building that comes to mind, the uh, Lion's House Museum uh, in Kew. <laughs> so this is a um, private uh, individual opening up their home uh, as a gallery space. So I'm just wondering, um, could artists themselves open up their home and uh, display their artworks so public can come in and have a look? Um. Well, I'll just say um, where I come from in Brisbane, it's very um, conservative state, there's been lots of political change um, and artists have actually 
uh, always had to uh, have very strong DIY culture and and have shows in their house and do all of this sort of stuff. And it's quite interesting. There's actually um, a, a guy named David Pistorius. He he has a gallery in his house. Look, this is um, I really I really like that model um, because it creates. Um, strong relationships um, with people and community. And, um, yeah, I think I, I actually prefer it. I think um, it, it creates, a, like, safer spaces for ideas and transmission of knowledge and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, think, I wish it was more common. But maybe, um, maybe property and real estate have a lot to do with that, maybe, um, um, why they're not more common or longer lived, perhaps. Um, it's, it's interesting we've come back to this um, oscillating between the purpose-built gallery and the reappropriated gallery. Um, it's evidently problematic to design a new contemporary art gallery in any space. Um, I can think of places like uh, Palais de Tokyo in Paris where you have so much freedom, you can do anything in that space. Uh, and as both, I'm assuming I haven't been an exhibitor there, but I've certainly been an audience there, there's a freedom, I believe, on both sides because um, there's no weight of the institution bearing down on you from either side. Um, and I think the challenge is upon purpose-built galleries to enable that, to enable that freedom uh, rather than the suffocation of the institution um, uh, and the economy of those, um, you know, landing down. So I suppose the challenges on the institutions and those new purpose-built galleries that are popping up all over the world to be a, a hand up, a helping hand and an enabler. Uh, and, you know, rather than this kind of rarefied thing um, at the marketplace end or the, the kind of, you know, the showstopper exhibition end, um, uh, you know, having a conduit right back down to the grassroots community, kind of opening that conduit all the way back up to that platform, um, sounds like a, a great place to <laughs> for that to go to. I do believe we've run out of time here. Um, I think this is. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, can I please get a big round of applause? You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.